0: Hello and welcome to The Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, turning this week to presidential politics, as we get further and further into the primary season, it looks more and more now as if we're going to end up with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump as the nominees of the two major parties come the fall and um, I want to start in the here and the now, and then we can play this forward into November. A few months ago, if you had told someone that people like Lindsey Graham and Jeb Bush were making public endorsements of Ted Cruz's presidential campaign, they would have probably thought that you had severe head trauma. Uh, Those are the two two of the names that are commonly associated with what's sometimes called the Republican establishment. And then on the other hand, you've got people like uh, Chris Christie and Scott Brown. They probably would have been on that list too they're backing Donald Trump. So there's a lot of debate now as to what the term even means. Victor, how would you define the Republican establishment? Is there one?
1: Yeah, there is. It's people who have or, you know, that hold federal and local and state offices, there are big donors. Um there's an intelligentsia like what we're doing today, people who work at think tanks. All of those more or less, not everybody's a, fully a part of it, but they're in at least in some way connected to it, and that group, chamber of commerce, um, you know, more or less believes that Donald Trump is an anathema, and I think they represent about thirty percent of the Republican traditional Republican vote, and then Trump probably has thirty to thirty-five percent, and then thirty-five uh, percent have their finger in the in the air and they're waiting to see who wins, and that. This is the $64,000 question this year is, will Trump bring in Reagan Democrats at a rate that uh, matches the people in the establishment who stay home? Will the people in the establishment talk a lot, but when it comes November and they actually look at the plank or the agenda of the Republican Party, which Trump will have to sign on to, will they say, well, he's a buffoon and he's vulgar, but this agenda is much more conservative on – uh, matters of taxes, fiscal discipline, military expenditure, foreign policy, and immigration than is Hillary Clinton's. So I, I think there's a lot of posturing right now by everybody until everything crystallizes to a either-or vote.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about the process getting to that. There's two big questions right now for anti-Trump Republicans. We'll take them one at a time. Yeah. The first one is This It seems like the the most likely outcome at this point in the primary season may be a convention where Donald Trump shows up with a fairly robust plurality of delegates but not the majority that he would need to win outright. It's mathematically impossible for John Kasich to get enough delegates to win the nomination. It would be extremely hard for Ted Cruz to do so. But there are also a lot of headwinds for Trump to cross the finish line before he gets to the convention. If we arrive at a contested convention – where Donald Trump comes in in poll position, is it wise for Republican officials, as some of them are talking about now, to try to steer the nomination to someone else?
1: Uh, I don't – I mean it's been done in the past, but I think Trump is going to come in with only needing about 30 or 40 delegates. So he's going to have enormous leverage whether he's dealing with Kasich's delegates or picking off after the first vote some of Rubio's. So I know there's all these scenarios, but um, – I think by the time of the convention, there's going to be some certain things that are going to happen. One is that people are going to digest Donald Trump. I think he's going to try to, to as much as he can, gets out of character, clean up his act, and he's going to try to be mainstream. And there's going to be people who think, you know what? I'd rather have the worse, the lesser of two evils. So I think he'll be able to find the delegates without because uh, there's there's not he's not going to need very many. It's not going to be a It's going to be like Jerry Ford and you know Ronald Reagan in 1976, where you know Ford didn't win it outright, but there were these at large delegates. He didn't need very many to stop Reagan. Okay, so second branch of this question:
0: It's already been reported in the New York Times and elsewhere that there is a contingent of Republicans attempting to prepare a third party run by another conservative if Donald Trump becomes the Republican nominee. What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, two things. It's never worked before and it won't work this time. And every time it's been tried, whether it's the bull moose party or Ross Perot, it tends to hurt the more conservative candidate if the person is a little bit more conservative than liberal. By that I mean if Ralph Nader runs, he hurts the liberal. If Teddy Roosevelt runs, he hurts William Howard Taft. If Ross Perot runs, he hurts George H.W. Uh, Bush. And so, if they want to run, it's going to hurt Donald Trump, and he probably won't be president. And then we're and maybe that's the point. But that that candidate's not going to get elected, and all he can do is stop the Republican nominee from being elected, and that's going to have a lot of fallout because a lot of people are not going to forget that. And uh, I understand. I mean, I I would vote. I am going to vote for Cruz in the California primary. But that's not the question that we're all facing. I'm afraid. And that's why I called that piece "Godzilla versus King Kong." I mean, <laughs> basically, you're going to have to vote for one of two people. And the way I look at it, I don't think it's likely that Trump will be indicted. And I think that if by any measure of fairness, if we had a disinterested attorney general, but Hillary Clinton, the more we read every day, should be indicted because she's committed felonies. And uh, that, for me, that's about it.
0: All right. So if we set sort of the nomination scenarios aside, let's talk for a minute about the prospect of of Donald Trump, the general election candidate. One of the defenses that you will hear from the kinds of Trump supporters who concede some of his shortcomings – is that he knows how to identify talent and that as president he would surround himself with the best people. Is is that persuasive to someone like you who hasn't totally dismissed him out of hand but who nevertheless has a lot of misgivings about him?
1: Yeah, I think – I understand that argument. Right now he's toxic. So nobody – it's sort of like bellying the cat. Nobody wants to be the first to try it. But when you start to listen to people like Newt Gingrich or Rudy Giuliani or Steve Moore or – you know. Larry Kudlow, you're starting to get the feeling that when somebody comes out and actually endorses him or when he's got it cinched up, there will be other people who will jump on. So I think he will get those people. Whether he listens to them or not, I don't know. But I'm, I think that a large number of influential, quote-unquote, establishment people will probably join him. And, he, and you're right. He has an uncanny ability to raise issues – that people seem to resonate to. So the problem with him, as I've always said, is he's a half populist. He, he brings up problems with NATO, and everybody knows there's problems with NATO. It's too big. We have obligations to states that we can't defend. We carry the load. But the answer is not just to get get out of it or to make it moribund. It's to reform it through threats. So he's very valuable in issuing the necessary threats, but I don't think he has a solution. Same thing with immigration. He says Mexico is going to build the wall, but they're not going to build the wall. But you could make them build the wall if you put a 10% sure charge on anybody in the United States who's here illegally and sending back some $80 billion to Latin America and Mexico. And uh, so he he does that all the time, whether it's questions about NATO, whether it's questions about uh, fiscal policy, whether it's questions about immigration, he gets the right issue and he he understands people are upset but then he doesn't come up with any logical solution. How do do you read
0: him on that? Because there seem to be two dominant schools of thought there, one of which is that he just sort of doesn't know what he's doing and he's flying by the seat of his pants. The other of which is that these are – he's sort of laying down markers to walk back from in the future for the purposes of negotiation.
1: I have a different take. I have been doing something – that's kind of strange. I've been going on YouTube and going and looking at Donald Trump in the 90s hmm. and on YouTube and even as late as 2012 and 13. And he just seems a completely different person. In other words, when he was in his 50s and early 60s, he, he looked better. He was trimmer. He was more robust. He used a teleprompter sometimes. And in interviews, he was specific He had data at his fingertips, and now he's sort of like Hillary Clinton. He just seems that he's kind of roly poly, out of shape. He's nearing seventy years old. He's tired. He says he doesn't get much sleep. I, I just don't think. I think this is a geriatric election where we have two people who were enormously gifted in the art of politics, even though Trumps was a sort of a different type. And now they're at the end of their careers, and they're not nearly as effective, at least publicly, as they used to be
0: so i don 't mean to have you adjudicate sort of every intra party fight in this yeah. episode, but this is, this is the last one i 'll ask you because you, you hear this a lot, and it strikes me as the big question here there 's a line of thought on the right uh, amongst the people who say that they would vote third party or maybe even hold their noses and vote for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump that runs best I can tell roughly as follows that Hillary Clinton may be horrible, conceited, you know, but she 's a known quantity, and the argument is we don't know. On the other hand, the outer limits of a president, Donald Trump, and you can make sort of a non-crazy case that there's an aroma of fascism around that notion. In other words, better to live with a conventional progressive, bad as that prospect may be, rather than someone who has the potential to take us into uncharted and maybe even dangerous territory. What do you make of that argument?
1: I'll give you two examples why it's wrong. We didn't know anything about Barack Obama and – these same people that are making that argument, if you said, well, what about Obama? They would probably say, well, they disagreed with him but he was within the parameters of a political candidate and his presidency was on the left but nevertheless. And so uh, this is a guy, remember, who who, when he was campaigning, you had the clinger speech, take a gun to a knife fight, get in their face, spread the wealth. Punish our enemies, all that stuff. And yet it didn't seem to bother the establishment uh, and nobody in the Democratic Party wanted to to form a third party even though he was an absolutely unknown quantity. Uh, Much more unknown than Trump. Trump has been in a public sphere a lot lot longer. The other thing is he reminds me a lot of uh, the disastrous uh, governor – Arnold Schwarzenegger. We didn't know anything about Schwarzenegger in the special election when he ran against, uh, to replace Gray Davis against uh, Cruz Bustamante. And I voted for him over Bustamante. I would do it again because he was marginally more conservative than Bustamante and even though he ended up to be a horrible governor and ended up adapting a 50% progressive agenda that really hurt the state, that 50% Agenda meant that it wasn't a hundred percent, which it would have been with Bustamante. So I guess because I maybe I, because I grew up farming, I'm very practical about these things, and I just don't get the the Republican intelligentsia idea that if he's not going to be, you know, um, a Washington, New York uh, Buckleyite conservative, or he he says things that are crude, therefore. Um, I don't, he, not in my name, so to speak. He makes me dirty too. I, I just don't get that. This this is a this is a bastardized culture, and it's pretty. It's a rough culture. And I mean, I, I, when I hear these Republicans, I think, wow. Do you know that JFK had sexual relations with an underage intern while he was president? it was really statutory rape do you, wow do you realize that L- Lyndon Johnson exposed himself in the White House to his own cabinet wow do you understand that Bill Clinton had sexual relations in the bathroom off the Oval Office you know wow and so I, I see these things and then I hear these people say wow Trump said this or Trump did this Well, that again the horse left the barn about 50 years ago as far as our popular culture goes
0: So last question I'll ask you, regardless of what happens the rest of this year, it it seems almost undeniable at this point that the Republican Party that we have at the end of 2016 is going to look very different than the one that we had only about a year or so ago. So the question, is there any going back? Is there any chance that this Trump thing sort of plays out and the GOP goes back to more or less the status quo ante?
1: Well, I just don't think that a Jeb Bush, Karl Rove – uh, worldview appeals to very many people that call themselves conservative anymore because it's basically elitist and they look at these people that write op-eds and on TV and it's like divorce lawyers that after the case is over, they go have cocktails together. So they think that they're alike. They both benefit mm. from big government. They don't like uh, people. I mean, they were hysterical about Sarah Palin. Maybe she was buffoonish. Maybe she wasn't. But there was a class element. And I think a lot of people feel that this tisk-tisk attitude of the establishment is because of the white working class. They just don't – they never – it lacks the romance, as we've said before, of the poor and it lacks the connections of the wealthy. And it's a, this is a class issue and they, they can't go to the Democrats and they thought that Republicans were conservative and now they're starting to say, you know what? They really don't like the white working class and that's what Trump – I mean when I find a pit bull on my lawn like I did last week, somebody threw out or dead one on the side of the road or there were four shootings last night uh, a mile away from my house in the barrio and then I listen to a guy like Jeb Bush say that's an act of love who sends his kids to prep school or I hear my Hoover colleagues talk about open borders as a wonderful libertarian economic free market incentive, da 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 I think these people are out to lunch. I think they're in Mars. They've never been around the white working class or knows what it puts up with. And unfortunately, because they haven't been around it and because they've ignored it, it you're not going to get a sober and judicious alternative. You're going to get a buffoon and a demagogue like Trump. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the
0: next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by Hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more
1: information about our work, please visit hoover.org.